stronger, be wiser. Our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment, our seat, our table. Yeah. Hey, 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 our seat. listening to Our Seat, Our Table, The Leadership Lounge. My name is Barbara Chandler, and today we have a very special program. As we all know, the Leadership Lounge, Our Seat, Our Table, it promotes our local community as well as surrounding communities through history, community organization, arts, and business. Today we have with us Speaking of history, for our local Central Florida, Orlando, downtown history, we have Representative Geraldine Thompson, who is also the founder of the Wells Built Museum. Good morning, Ms. Thompson. How are you? Good morning. I'm doing well, thank you. Excellent. Uh, we want to learn more. Our audience would like to learn more about the Orlando downtown, uh, downtown Orlando, the surrounding communities that make up downtown Orlando, and what really inspired you to begin the Wells Built Museum. Well, uh, the inspiration came uh, through my work at Valencia uh, Now State College. When I came to Orlando in the 1970s, I tried to get information about uh, African Americans who had helped to develop the community and who had made contributions, and I could not find the information in the library. I couldn't find it in any textbook. Uh, it was not part of any school curriculum, and so I worked with a group to do oral histories. And we interviewed some of the pioneers in the community, uh, Dr. I. Sylvester Hankins, Jr., uh, Napoleon Knapp Ford, Alzo Reddick, uh, Dr. Thelma Dudley, people like that. And uh, we recorded those conversations, and I was able to develop a history. And that is what led me to work to found a museum. I worked at Valencia for 24 years and collected a lot of information, a lot of artifacts, and it was, you know, becoming a lot. It was piling up, and I knew that I needed a repository. <laughs> and so in 1990, I worked with a group to start an organization, a nonprofit, the Association to Preserve African American Society, History and Tradition, who are known as PAST. Correct. And we acquired the uh, former Wells Mill Hotel. We were incorporated in 1992, acquired the hotel in 1998, working with the Trust for Public Land, and started a three-year rehabilitation of that building. And the building is so significant because if uh, you can think of uh, segregation, 
there were no options or very few options for African Americans who came to Central Florida if they wanted to stay overnight, unless they had friends or someone in the community took them into their home, they had no place to stay. So, Dr. William Monroe Wells addressed mm-hmm. this issue in 1926 when he applied for a building permit from the city of Orlando to build a two-story hotel. Mm-hmm. And it took him three years because he had to self-finance. Wow. The banks downtown would not loan him money. They did not see a black-owned hotel as a profitable enterprise or something that they should invest in. Wow. So the hotel opened in 1929, and he named it for himself. And uh, this physician was William Monroe Wells, who came to Orlando in 1917. In addition to the um, hotel, before the hotel actually, he had a performance center. Uh, it was called the South Street Casino. Okay. And he booked big bands, Duke Ellington, Billie Holiday, Ella Fitzgerald, Cab Calloway, wow. Ray Charles, all of those kind of people performed. And when they finished, they had no place to stay. So he wanted to provide quality lodging, and that's uh, why he built the hotel. It opened in 1929 and was listed in a publication that started publishing in 1936. The publication was the Negro Motorist Green Book. Book. Wow. And, yeah, the Negro Motorist Green Book was compiled by a black postal worker in Harlem. Okay. And using his network of black postal workers throughout the country, he was able to identify by state and by city places where African Americans would be welcome and would be safe. So the Wealth Bill got national exposure by being listed in the National, uh, in the Negro Motorist Green Book, uh, and the first publication was 1936. And uh, some of those publications are online now. And if you look at Florida and you find Orlando, you'll see the only hotel where African-Americans could stay was the Wells Mill. Was the Wells Mill. That was my inspiration to be able to save the uh, history and to be able to share it with the community. Right. Wow. Wow. I was not um, aware of the role that the uh, the casino played or what you identified as where the different shows would come in. Um, where was Mr. Wells from initially? He was born in Fort Gaines, Georgia in 1899, uh, 89, and uh, he was you know, part of a close-knit family. And one of the things that he valued very much was education. And his uh, parents encouraged him to get an education. And he learned about uh, medical college in Nashville, Tennessee. And the medical college was named uh, Meharry. Before then, it had been known as Walden uh, Medical College, but it was renamed to honor the generosity of a white Irishman who, when he was, I think in his in his uh, late teens, was traveling uh, through an area 
and he, the, the wagon that he had ran off the road and slid into a ditch. Oh, wow. And he went to look, look for help. And he saw a cottage, and as it turned out, the cottage was occupied uh, by African Americans uh, just out of uh, slavery. They gave him a place to stay for the night, and in the morning, they helped him get his wagon back on the road. His name was Samuel Mahari, and uh, Mahari told him that he didn't have any money, but that when he got money, he was going to do something for their race. And uh, he donated land and gave money to build the medical college that was named for him, Mahari, and that's where Dr. Wells got his training, and that's in Nashville, uh, Tennessee. He read about Orlando in the newspaper and decided that that would be a good place to start his medical practice because at the time, there was only one other black physician in Orlando, and that was Dr. Jeremiah okay. B. Callahan. And the Callahan uh, area is named for him. Dr. Callahan came to Orlando in 1908, Dr. Wells in 1917. And the year after Dr. Wells arrived, there was the influenza epidemic, similar to what we're facing now with COVID-19. And Dr. Wells and Dr. Callahan had to take care of the entire black community because white physicians did not treat black patients. And because there was such a need, they ended up treating some white patients as well. Uh, So Dr. Wells uh, started the South Street Casino, built the hotel, owned property all along uh, South Street, also owned a gasoline uh, service Station, so he was able to use the medical practice as a way to uh, build up the, the community. And he also sent his siblings, the children of his siblings, to college. And they ended up being educators. One became a dentist uh, in the Daytona area. And so he reached back as he lifted himself up. He reached back to pull others uh, with him. And so what we have in Orlando with the Wells Built, which is now a museum of African-American history and culture, we have physical evidence of the contributions of many African-Americans, and those contributions, that information would have been lost if not for the work that we are doing at the Wells Built Museum. Wow, wow, wow. That is a lot of history. I was not aware. I am aware of the Callahan Center. I personally know it, but not knowing the history of the person behind of it. So as we see, uh, currently right now, downtown Orlando has definitely been reshaped. Uh, We have the Orlando Magic Arena. We have the Soccer Arena. How is that impacting uh, the community as we speak now to what we know the history to be? Well, um, as you know, I'm a public um, historian. Correct. And so I see displacement. I see a lot of the uh, historic buildings in the Paramore community being demolished, the kind of thing that you would not see happening 
playing in Winter Park in the historic uh, area. That's correct. You wouldn't see it in, in Delaney. And so I have mixed emotions. Uh, I believe in revitalization, but I believe in historic preservation at the same time. That's correct. And so when you see a soccer stadium in the middle of Paramore, uh, you know, that has been so important to the community, you see, uh, of course, all of those buildings, all of the people have been displaced. That's correct. And the same thing, the same thing is true for uh, the Amway Center. And the reason that you see the uh, shift to the west is that downtown is saturated. Right. So where are you going to go and where can you find reasonably priced land? You're going to find that in the inner city. And so I'm concerned that we're going to continue to see this kind of erosion unless uh, more of us, and, and I've been a voice in the wilderness for a long time, so unless more of us begin to speak up for historic preservation, we're going to lose a lot more. That's correct. And it even emphasizes as to why uh, a repository such as the Wells Built Museum is so needed. How can people support the Wells Built that you all can continue to do, the organization can continue to do the work and have a footprint in that community as we are seeing it change so rapidly? Well, past uh, the nonprofit organization that was formed in 1990 and was incorporated in 1992 uh, is a membership organization. So people can become members of PATH uh, for $35 a year, and uh, that's a very reasonable membership. Extremely. And if we could get thousands of people with $35, we would have the funding that's needed to keep up this historic building. And you know when you have an older building, there's always something that needs repairing. That's correct. Uh, and uh, we need more staff to be able to do the research. We have a, an extensive collection of photographs and newspapers that all need to be digitized. That's right. Uh, because, you know, we, uh, whenever we get a hurricane or a storm, I'm always concerned that with water... Uh, intrusion, we're going to lose some things. So, I mean, we, you know, those are all things that we are working on at the museum. Excellent, excellent. And how can someone contact the museum? What is the website? Can you recite or repeat the website for us? Um, the, the email for the, for the museum is past, P-A-S-T, Okay. One past ink one at gmail dot com. Uh, we have a website, and I can't right now pull it. Okay, we can find that. Right, and our phone number is four zero seven two four five seven five three five. Excellent, excellent. 
Um, once again, you are listening to Representative Geraldine Thompson, as well as she is the founder of the Wells Built Museum located in downtown Orlando. We encourage you as our listeners and community members to visit these African-American spaces in which to learn the local history. As we are seeing our, our, the climate change within, the, within our uh, United States, as we are in the middle of the Derek Chauvin trial, it is important, it is important, we urge you to connect with these local galleries. We always need funding. We always need volunteers. As we have become more of a, a, a digital community, it is important that we continue to connect and share our mission. So once again, you are listening to Our Seat, Our Table. You can listen to us through Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as WPRK, and the call, the call numbers on the radio are 91.5. You have just heard from local historian Representative Geraldine Thompson about the history of downtown Orlando. Visit the Wells Built Museum, look it up online, in which you can learn the days and time. Representative Thompson, I want to thank you so much. Every time I speak with you, you just encourage me in the work that I'm doing here in Winter Park, and you are just a remarkable, remarkable wealth of information. Thank you for the work that you continue to do. Thank you. Have a wonderful afternoon. You too. All right, bye-bye. Be higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser, our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time. Good our morning, morning our seat, You are listening our to our seat, our hey. table. Hey. My name is Barbara Chandler, and we have today Mr. Daniel Ings. He is the founder of the local mentoring program. It's called Boys to Men Mentoring Program. Good morning, Mr. Ings. How are you today? I'm great. Good morning to you. We would like to welcome you to our seat, our table. I am especially familiar with your program as they have toured the Hannibal Square Heritage Center. And our seat, just to give you a bit of uh, who we are, our seat, our table is a local uh, media. And in this local media, we highlight community organizations such as Boys to Men Mentoring Program. That way we can showcase exactly what is in our community and what inspires people like yourself, residents like yourself to create a program such as Boys to Men Mentoring. So for those who are not aware, Mr. Ings, tell us what motivated you to begin the Boys to Men Mentoring Program in Central Florida. Wow. Well, thank you for this opportunity and for this space, Ms. Barbara. I'm so grateful to be uh, on today. Um, Boys to Men Mentoring Program um, was founded back in 2016. Um, I've always worked with youth uh, since my college days. Um, I was even a youth pastor for a period of time and also was a substitute teacher um, for Orange County Public Schools. And I just saw what, what, I, what I recognize as there was a school bus that was leaving from the schools, but going straight to the correctional facilities. 
Wow. And I said within and I said within myself, what can I do to stop that bus and rescue mm. as many boys as I can before he makes it to that correctional facility? And that was really the 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 motivation uh, I had at that time, and along with working with uh, youth within uh, ministry at that moment, um, that's really was the was the starting point and kind of got the wheels uh, rolling in that capacity. But Boys to Men Mentoring Program. Uh, was founded in 2016, as I pre pre previously stated, and it is a community-based prevention program for men ages 10 to 18, responsive leaders um, by providing educational enrichment, uh, mentoring, uh, life transformation skills, and community service projects. Uh, we strive to be uh, the change agent in uh, fostering excellence in the areas of education, health, and social well-being in urban and diverse uh, communities by providing a variety of services designed to help the students we serve accomplish their graduation and their post-secondary success plan. So it's really a program to really just to support mm -hmm. and to guide these young men as they transition from boys into men. To men. I know that you stated that it's from ages 10 to 18, is that it? That That's correct, yes ma'am. Okay, and where are these young men coming from? What areas are they coming from? Well, actually, they come from all over Orange County, and I even have a few that come from Seminole County. The parents have valued the program and heard about our services and uh, wanted their, um, their sons to be a part, and they actually bring them from Seminole County to be a part of Boys to Men, uh, but mainly from the uh, Ivy Lane, uh, Richmond Heights, uh, Paramore, Holden Heights, uh, Texas Ave, Pine Hills, um, what they call Crosstown, the area that I grew up in, um, mm -hmm. pretty much we, we cover all of those areas. So boys come from all those particular neighborhoods, uh, North Lake Man, Washington Shores, all those areas we cover. Wow, wow, wow. I know Crosstown. I know Crosstown. <laughs> I know a lot of those areas where you mentioned. And for many of our listeners who may not know those areas, those areas, ex explain to our listeners those areas that you just mentioned, um, we know you and I know that a lot of those areas tend to be high crime rates. Um, Absolutely. Right. And so yes. having an established program, an important program in this particular climate, such as boys to men is very critical. It is very critical. Um, yes, it is. About how many mentors do you have? Um, within the program, working with these young men? Wow. Well, we have about uh, six uh, loyal um, mentors that are totally locked in and are ready to serve at any time as it relates to, to our young men. And then we also have about four administrative staff members that uh, handles the paperwork and things behind the scenes to make sure that the program is operational uh, week after week and month after month. Wow. Very nice. Very nice. So in that, I, I, when I when I hear of such a program like this, um, we, we the 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 follow up question um, is always what is the one of the follow up questions tends to be always what is the success rate? But you and I know that in these communities, success rates differ from student to student, from location to location. So how does your organization, Boys to Men Mentoring, how do you do success for each one of these young men 
coming from different areas and coming from different circumstances. Well, absolutely. Well, you stated something earlier as it relates to the different neighborhoods in which we serve, and we know that um, most of the demographics are uh, single-parent homes, uh, low-income housing, and these youth are considered at risk because they are exposed to um, negative um, you know, behaviors and uh, drugs and alcohol and violence and things of that sort. They see it every single day. And so our idea is to um, basically create an environment for them and coming from various backgrounds from, you know, as I stated, single parent homes, whether that's grandmother raising the child or mom raising the child or even an aunt that's raising the child. And so we want to provide a level of support to let that parent or that grandparent know that you're not in this by yourself. We understand that raising a teenager um, is, is not really easy, especially when they've had uh, certain traumatic experiences or things that have happened in their early childhood. Um, and so therefore we step in uh, to bring about that layer of support. And this program is really, um, um, it's built upon five pillars. And those pillars are possibility, responsibility, consistency, support, and forgiveness. And I what? mentioned those because uh, consistency is absolutely key. Um, these boys have already experienced either someone uh, stating that, that, that they would be in, to be in their lives and they never show up or they come into their lives and, and suddenly they disappear or there's an absence. And so therefore it leaves a type of void in these, in these young men's lives. And so uh, my objective, my job is to step in and not to ask them what's wrong with you, but to ask them what happened to you. And a lot wow. of times we're able to build that relationship to where before they make rational decisions or before they make that poor choice, they will talk up to us and say, uh, Mr. Ings, I'm having an issue. This took place last night at my house. Or this happened over here with a friend on the corner. What do I do? How do I handle that situation? But they're not going to come automatically until you first build that relationship. And so we take pride in making that happen. So mentoring for us, success for us comes in so many different facets to where uh, it could be that they're running their report card to us, uh, but previously they were hiding their report card because they were ashamed of their grades. But now because we are working with them, helping them academically, they are running their report cards to us and say, listen, I brought that F up to a C or I brought that C up to an A and they are excited about it. And we have so many success stories as it relates to kids who have never been on the AB honor roll since they were in elementary school. Now they're in high school and they're saying, Mr. Ings, I can't remember the last time I had all A's and B's, but because they understand that somebody really cares about their future and really willing to step in and stay right there to see them throughout the end. Wow, wow, wow. That that is excellent. I, I love the five pillars. I love the consistency because you and I both know a lot of times again looking at the situation case by case by case, situate mm -hmm. uh consistent consistency in mm -hmm. the in the development years plays a very crucial role in Absolutely. building trust. In Absolutely. building um, a, a an agreement between the child and the adult, how can we, as the community, support Boys to Men program? <laughs> well, there there are many different ways, and I will say, uh, number one, you know, being able to just send out a just a, a simple prayer, you know, just daily, and say, Lord, you know, cover the ones who are being uh, community heroes who are out there in the trenches uh, trying to make a change in the lives of the boys, and um, 
by logging on to our website and being able to just to read about the information and see some uh, different pictures and uh, the galleries of things that we've done in the past and how we want to continue those services and even take them to the next level. And that website address is uh, B2M Orlando.org. Again, that's B2M Orlando.org. And we're always looking for a positive uh, males uh, and doesn't matter of your race or your background. Uh, one of my um, most dedicated individuals is a young man that um, that has been in the system, you know, for 30 plus years of his life. And so we're able to utilize him because he's able to stand and say, hey, that's not the road you want to go because I've been there before. So we welcome the professionals. We welcome the pastors. We welcome community leaders, uh, anyone who has a story they want to share about their career, um, who just have that time to just give um, into the program to just bring about impact on different levels to those boys. Wonderful. Uh, uh, Mr. Ames, what type of activities have you all done in the past? Wow, we have, uh, we've, we've done a lot of things. Uh, we appreciate uh, many of the partners and I apologize for the background noise. I'm at school again um, and it's okay. Now it's over. Sorry about that. Um, <laughs> we enjoy taking the boys on different um, field trips. Um, just to get them out of the house and just to for, for interaction and uh, for social skills purposes, um, being able to utilize table manners when we take them out to, to lunch or take them out to dinner, because sometimes those basic skills, they don't learn at home or they may not learn even in school. And so we're able to share with them those, those social skills and those uh, table etiquettes as they go out different places. But um, we also do an annual college tour trip. Uh, we have been blessed to um, travel to Atlanta. We've been to Miami. We've been to Tampa. And on last year, in the middle of a pandemic, we were so blessed to fly to Washington, D.C. Wow. And it was a very monumental moment for our program. 27 boys were able to attend this trip. And uh, out of the 27, uh, um, only three of them had ever flown before. So it was really, <laughs> it was, a, it was a, a, a nervous moment, but also an exciting moment for them. And they were able to you know, just see that process of walking through the airport, flying on a plane and living there in DC for three days and seeing the different uh, monuments and the historical areas. It was an amazing time. And I know that it's something that they would never ever forget. And we do that because we, we have a, a statement called passport to exposure. We yes. feel like exposure is key and that if they can see something yes. outside of their normal environment, see something outside of what they see every single day, it gives them a hope. It gives them a chance to say, you know what, one day I'm going to get a good job and I'm going to come back and travel to this area. One day I'm going to bring my family yeah. uh, to enjoy these type of amenities and different amusement parks uh, throughout the world. And so, yeah. um, so yes, ma'am. So th those are just, just a few of the things that we do along with bowling, skating, uh, professional basketball games when we're able to. To, you know, to gather uh, pre, uh, before COVID. And so, again, th this is just being able to give them an outlet and to keep them in a safe environment uh, when they're away from home and parents know that, hey, if they're with Boys the Men, they're with Mr. Ings, they're in a good place and they're going to be okay. Wow. I am in total agreement with you when you talk about exposure. I believe yes. exposure can change the trajectory of someone's life. They have a reference. So I absolutely you, um, I commend the mentors that are working with you, the commitment, uh, the time commitment and the dedication 
that that you all put into this I, again it's so needed in this climate i thank you for for doing this work um and i love the fact that you're at school now and and there's noise in the back once again <laughs> that shows us that you are connected you're not just doing the work but you yes. are connected to the work and i Absolutely. hear your passion so I thank, thank you so you. much for doing this kind of work. Please give us the email address. I'm sorry, the website contact again that we can, uh, our listeners can uh, find you. They can find out more about your program and they can find ways in which they would like to support you. Absolutely. Um, our website address is B2M, that's B as in boy, number two, M as in Mary, Orlando, B2MOrlando.org. They can also find us on Instagram with that same particular tagline, B2MOrlando, or they can find us on Facebook at Boys to Men Mentoring. Excellent, Mr. Ings. This is Daniel Ings, the founder of Boys to Men Mentoring Program in Central Florida. We want to thank you all so much. We want to thank you for doing the work. Uh, Tremaine Barry Hill is the one who has kind of put us in contact, who is yes. also with the program. Yes, who is with the program as well. And again, you know, we are here for you. Our seat, our table is just not our platform. Mm -hmm. It's the community's platform. So if anytime any of the boys have an interest and they want to host a program or the things they would love to talk about, we welcome that. Well, we appreciate that. Thank you, Ms. Barbara. Thank you so very much. Absolutely. Once again, you are listening to Our Seat, Our Table. Thank you so much. Go higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser. Our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment, our seat. Good morning, everyone. Yeah. You are listening hey, to Our hey. Seat, Our Table. Up next, we have our one and only Andrew Brown with our Artist Spotlight. Andrew, who do we have today? Good Friday morning, everyone. I'm so excited. I have been trying to get anyone involved in the dance arts for quite a while and I have with me Maxine Montillas who is the founding director of the MV Dance Project and who also is a choreographer for Opera Orlando and we'll talk more about her work with them. Maxine, good morning. Good morning. How are you? I'm doing well. Thank you so much for joining us. And for those of you who don't know, who may not have heard about Maxine, she is the choreographer for Opera Orlando's production of the opera Carmen by French composer Georges Bizet. Um, Maxine, tell us a little bit about the opera, uh, what the, the backstory behind the opera is for those who don't know or have never seen Carmen performed. Well, the story Carmen is about a woman of the same name, of course, um, who is very confident in who she is and her power as a woman and her explorations in searching for love and it encompasses elements of desire, jealousy, um, and uh, 
you know, various forms of wanting and uh, personal pursuit. Um, basically, she falls in love with a gentleman named Don Jose who originally had plans to, uh, you know, marry a woman named Michaela mm-hmm. and... Oh, I'm sorry, Michaela, I said the name wrong. And But it falls in love with her and basically follows their journey um, throughout the opera of their... And um, I say personal pursuit because, you know, the story of Carmen was created at a time where women weren't ne- didn't necessarily have society in general. And so to see this woman who is self-determined to create the life that she wants for herself and pursue the relationships that she wants is was very forward at that time. But I still think it speaks to uh, a woman's desire to have self-determination still, which is just part of the reason why I think the story is still popular, in addition to the beautiful music and acting of the production. Awesome. And no. what, Oh, I just wanted to add, um, what sets Opera Orlando's uh, production apart from the other versions of Carmen mm-hmm. is that they decided, normally Carmen is set in Spain, mm-hmm. um, and this production is set in Haiti in the 1960s. Now, how so, how does that, um, and I know that you are um, first generation Haitian American, what does that mean to you to be the choreographer of this reimagined Carmen? I'm always proud to be part of something that allows me to showcase the beauty of my culture. And I have seen other versions of Carmen. I've seen a Paris Opera's version. I, of course, I've seen Carmen Jones featuring Dorothy Dandridge, who, mm-hmm. um, who got nominated for an Oscar, which was a big deal at the time because she was the first African-American woman, I believe, to get that nomination in history. Mm-hmm. Um, and so, but having it set in Haiti... Um, allows me the space to, as a choreographer to showcase my culture through dance and be a part of a production that highlights my culture in a beautiful way. And so I'm always proud to be a part of something that allows me to highlight the beauty of Haiti um, because my life's work and, or part of my life's work, I should say. Um, but I am excited to be a part of a production that allows me to showcase uh what Haiti has to offer through movement. Absolutely. Now, how did you get started in dance? Oh, gosh. Uh, <laughs> I actually know the date that I started dancing. Oh, my wow. Mom, when, she, <laughs> my mom, when she enrolled me in dance classes, um, the school that I went to was a local studio in Brooklyn called Star Maker that doesn't exist anymore. Mm-hmm. But um, they required us to have notebooks take down notes on different dance steps and choreographies that we learned in class, and as well as ballet steps. Mm. And my mom had my sister write on the first page of my book, October 1st, 1988, Maxine starts taking dance classes today. Oh, wow. And so, <laughs> I'm sorry, Maxine starts taking ballet classes today. So that's why, so I actually know the date I started dancing. Um, my mom wanted to get us involved in different activities to keep us busy. Um, and it just so happened that she chose dance for me at a time where I was interested because I had seen the 1986 film version of The Nutcracker, which was performed by Pacific Northwest Ballet. Mm -hmm. And that had me fall in love with ballet. And so I was excited to start taking ballet classes. I find it a little ironic now because I still love ballet, but obviously what I do is a bit removed (laughs) from that particular form of dance. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. I still take ballet classes, but as a choreographer, um, I don't necessarily 
uh, choreographed ballet movements all the time. So um, that's the irony, I guess. But uh, ballet was my intro, and my my entry point into dance for sure. And then, did you stick with dance all the way through, or did you falter a little bit? Tell us a little bit about how you ended up being becoming a choreographer. So I studied at Starmaker for four years where I did ballet, tap, and jazz. Um, then I studied at Boards Harbor Conservatory in East Harlem. Okay. Under, which, under the direction of Nina Clivert Lawson, who I refer to as my dance mother, because she's the woman that inspired me to really pursue it as a career. Because not only watching her teach, and, you know, I, I knew of her performance background with companies like Ailey 2, and then to see her directing a dance program, it showed me that, oh, you can have a career in this. Mm-hmm. And so I studied dance in their Saturday dance division, and then I joined their pre-professional company, Gestures Dance Ensemble, which gave me my first experience of performing in a company. Um, and uh, then I went to University of the Arts to study dance as an undergraduate. I was a modern dance major. Um, at the time that you studied at UArts, UArts' program has changed, but at the time you picked ballet, modern, or jazz as your concentration as mm-hmm. a major, and then you chose a performance or education track. Um, and so I was a modern dance performance major. I did falter after this undergraduate experience. Not to, I don't want to speak negatively of University Arts because that I wouldn't be who I am without that program. Mm-hmm. And I made lifelong relationships there. But I did get caught up in comparing myself to other dancers in the department ah. and allowing insecurities to get at me because you know I, I I've never been. Uh, a stick thin dancer, you know. Mm-hmm. I'm Asian. I have hips and curves mm-hmm, <laughs> and things mm-hmm. of that nature. And so um, I had the faulty thinking that, oh, if I can't make it here, then there's no place in the dance world for me. Um, because, you know, when I was at UART, uh, certain types of dances were prized, and, you know, I was a different mover. I, my leg doesn't hit my head, <laughs> and mm-hmm. I, don't do, I can't do a switch leap into a tilt or something. So, um, I, because of that, I decided, I had, I had, a, I had to develop an interest in arts administration at the same time in undergrad and pursuing internships in summers and different semesters. So I went to London after, right after undergrad to study arts management at City University in London. Oh, wow. Um, but I stopped dancing for three years. Um, so I focused on just crafting a career in arts administration uh, and then not dancing myself. But of course... I was not fully happy mm-hmm. <laughs> not dancing. Uh, you know, it was a big part of me. Um, I thought, initially I told myself, oh, I'll just be an arts administrator and support the field that way. Um, what got me actually back into dancing was Haitian folklore dance because I had reached a point where I wanted to explore my heritage more. Living in London, I was got to be exposed to people from so, I mean, I'm from New York, so I'm always used to a, a great deal of diversity. But in London, it was sort of enhanced. Um, that people from so many different countries that I previously had not been exposed to. And seeing, you know, people have the pride and knowledge of their cultural background, you realize how much I didn't know about Haiti. I mean, mm-hmm. I grew up in a Haitian household with the food and the language and things of that nature. But I realized there was a lot about Haitian history I didn't know. And so I... I made a promise to myself that when I came back to the States, I would start studying Haitian folklore dance because that was my entry point into, that, that for me, it felt, it felt natural to use my dance form, my art, artistic, preferred artistic form to, to explore my heritage further. 
And when I was, it was when I was 13 years old that I first learned about Catherine Dunham, who was considered the mother of black dance, and um, learned about her trips to Haiti, um, her, her research in Haiti, I should say, to study Haitian folklore dance. And that left a huge impression on me. So I knew I wanted to explore it myself. And so when I, it was three years after I had stopped dancing in 2007 that I resumed um, dancing by taking Haitian folklore dance classes to study. And I studied with um, various teachers, like um, Adia Whitaker was my first, um, Nadia Dedonet, Peniel Guerrier, Julio Jean. These are master teachers in New York City. Um, and through, I started studying Haitian folklore dance with them, and then I started studying Afro-Cuban dance uh, a couple years after that because I discovered by going to see a dance company called Oyu Oro that Haiti and Cuba has connections culturally. Mm. Um, there, there is a Haitian population, particularly on the eastern side of Cuba, mm-hmm. that still retain a lot of Haitian folklore traditions within the island. And most people don't know that Haitian Creole is actually the second official language in Cuba after Spanish. Oh, wow. I didn't know and that. So, right. So um, I wanted to explore that connection further. So I started studying Afro-Cuban dance with Oyuro's director, Danny Lamora Perez. And and 2010 was when I started going to Cuba myself to um, study Afro-Cuban dance and music further. I went three summers in a row with La Mora. Oh, wow. And I also got, you know, my, my, my first trip to Haiti was actually in 2009, but that was strictly to meet family that I had never met for the, fir- for the first time. Mm-hmm. 2012 was also a family-oriented trip, but 2014 was when I started going to Haiti to study dance. Um, and I... I did a program initially under a Trinidadian choreographer by the name of Makeda Thomas, and then 2018-2019, I went for um, to do a program called Vimpran Baguette with a Haitian choreographer named Dufault Lamisea. Mm-hmm. And of course, I was supposed to go last summer, but COVID. <laughs> so, but I, I, regardless, I, I definitely foresee myself continuing to uh, go to Haiti to, to study. And then modern dance came back into my life in 2008 when a friend of mine recommended a summer program called the Urban Bushwoman Summer Leadership Institute under the company Urban Bushwoman, which is led by Jawale Willa Joe Dollar. And um, I, ch- I chose to do that summer program because they it was a, it's all about studying how to use your art form towards community engagement and social justice. But of course, you guys take dance classes every day, and, I, and so I was taking modern dance classes every day. And you know, through taking, increasingly taking classes, I realized, oh, I think I want to perform again. I remember t- in 2011, I think it was 2011, I told friends, I think I want to get back into performing. And I mean, I did. I had done an apprenticeship with a company called In Spirit under the direction of Crystal Brown in 2009, but um, then I, I did that, that apprenticeship for about a year and then I resumed taking classes. But then I was like, I think I really want to go back to the stage. And then within six months of me saying that, I was in three dance companies. Oh, wow. <laughs> I was with Kanu Dance Theater led by Jessica Sanville-Ulise. Um, Adia Whitaker's company at Ashe Dance Theater Collective and um, my friend Tamara Williams' company Moving Spirits and these are all companies that fuse contemporary forms with folkloric dance forms like Kanu does a mix of Haitian folklore with contemporary dance Adia's work was actually a little different Ashe does neo-folklore traditions like fusing different folklore traditions to create new presentations of art using poetry and hip-hop and like you know Emerging various art forms, but with folklore as a base, and then um, Tamara does a fusion of contemporary with Afro-Brazilian movement. 
So I was for a while I was just performing for different people. Um, the first time I felt called, I mean, I I took choreographed in undergrad because mm-hmm. at university arts you have to. <laughs> but um, it's funny because when it came to choreographing, I originally thought I hated it because when I was in the Boys Harbor Conservatory with gestures, we had to always choreograph as a group. Mm. And, you know, the, ch- the challenge there is that everyone has strong opinions, everyone wants their way. Right. And fall out with, like, different decision-making. And so I, because of that process, I actually originally did not. I thought, I, I assumed, oh, I hate choreographing. This is annoying. <laughs> um, but then when I was at University of Arts, my junior year, I, I, my very first piece was a piece called Spontaneous Combustion, where I was con- talking about the way a lot of you respond to stress. Mm-hmm. And choreographing on my own, I was like, oh, this is fun. Like, I love <laughs> <laughs> Um, I mean, not to downplay gestures because, you know, we were hot-headed teenagers. So, you know, it, it was just a different thing at different mm-hmm. times. But in college, I was like, oh, wait, choreographing and putting movements together and telling a story is so great. And, like, I felt so much pride when my finished project finally hit the stage. And I was like, okay. So I realized I really enjoyed this. But then I left it alone for a long time, you know, with the with me falling out of dance and coming back into dancing. Um, but... I came back to choreographing in 2000, uh, I think it was 2011. Um, that was near that both of my grandmothers passed. Um, and later that, at the end of that year, I choreographed a piece in their memory called Message of Giving. Mm-hmm. And everyone had strong emotional reactions seeing it because they knew what the subject matter and everyone gave me a lot of positive feedback. And so I started, like, you know, just choreographing independently in different pockets. Like, um, I was a member of Dance Caribbean Collective, um, where we, they present different contemporary Caribbean choreographers. So for three years, I did their New Traditions Festival, where I got to present different solo work um, con- in Kanu Dance Theater and Moving Spirits. Both Jessica and Tamara gave me space to create choreographies on the companies. But it wasn't until... 2019 that I was like I want to start my own thing because I realized I had my own stories I wanted to tell um, and I, I wanted uh, to create a container a space to create work with other people and I, I called the company MZ Dance Project because uh, MZ I was, you know I'm highly inspired by the lives of my grandmothers their names were Maxine Montalas I was named after her my uh-huh. paternal grandmother and um, Veli Pierre is my maternal grandmother and my maternal grandmother, Veli, was a healer. As a child, I remember people coming by our house all the time to get her famous massages and different um, forms of healing that she would offer people for different ailments. Mm-hmm. And then with Maxine, I'll never forget my very first trip to Haiti. We were visiting her house, and there were tons of people working at the house, like doing construction, cooking, and you know, doing various services. And I remember turning to my father and saying, how did she afford all this help. And my dad was like, oh no, they do it for her for free because she gives so much to her community, do stuff for her as mm-hmm. a thank you. And I was so struck by that. Like this woman had this established this sense of community for herself and was such a pillar of it. Um, and my grandmother, my other grandmother, the same way, like when she passed, so many people came out for her funeral because she had healed so many people and fostered community with so many people. And so I wanted to be able to do that through dance. And so I, just, I felt that I wanted to uphold the memory and the naming of my company to sort of remind myself how I want to foster community and serve community through movement. And so far, we had a, our MV has had an evening length show called um, where we present a full evening length work called Strength of Spirit. 
which talked about like the ways in which we can strengthen our spirits through times of struggle. So I wasn't necessarily looking at it from a religious perspective, but just like ways we can strengthen our spirit. It could be meditation, it could be prayer, it could be just indulging in different forms of joy. You know, I wanted to look at it from a universal perspective. Um, so I collaborated with uh, four other dancers for that. Um, we also did a series of like online solos for social media called MD in 2020, where we were just responding to all the things that were happening in 2020. Mm-hmm. Um, and then, Last year and the year before, I, we collaborated with a company called Creole Dance Collective, led by Veronique Ignace, um, where we did a series of classes offering different dance forms from the African diaspora. The series was called New Fusion Series, so we did like a week-long series of workshops for the community um, two years in a row. Of course, last year um, there was a virtual component, but we did offer, we were able to get studio space where we could have socially distant classes. Um, and so I hope, I'm, you know, obviously in this time of COVID, I'm <laughs> not exactly sure what's next, but, you know, I'm looking forward to looking for other ways for MD to serve communities, their movement, not just public performances, but education practices and things of that nature. Awesome. So. For those of you just joining us, this is Our Seat, Our Table on 91.5 WPRK Rollins Radio. And you can also listen to us on Spotify. On the artist spotlight, I have Maxine Montillas, who is the choreographer of Opera Orlando's reimagined Carmen, which is set in Haiti in the 1960s. Are you familiar with the Haitian artist Patrick Nose? Yes, I, I had read about his profile through Opera Orlando and knew that he was commissioning uh, a piece. He was creating a piece for the production. He is a he is an absolute riot, but so intelligent and so well rounded that anytime you talk to him or meet him, um, you just become enraptured in everything that that he has to say and his experiences and. And it's just amazing. So hopefully you'll get the opportunity to um, to meet him. I do know that Carmen opens up on April 1st. Well, that was yesterday. So and then again on the 3rd. But Maxine, there's another way that audiences can watch Carmen. Is that right? person show on Saturday, April 3rd at 2 p.m., but for those who are unable to attend that performance, um, you can buy virtual access and to stream the show between April 16th and May 7th, so you'll have a, quite a bit of time to be able to watch the show, and it's $25 per household oh, wow. to have that virtual access. That is amazing. Maxine, thank you so much for coming on. This was Maxine Montalis, the choreographer for Opera Orlando's reimagined production of Carmen that was set originally in Spain, but this time it's in Haiti in the 1960s. Maxine, thank you so much for coming on. Thank you for having me. All right. Coming up next on our seat, our table is Lavonda Wilder, and I'll see you guys next week. Go higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser, our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, our moment. Thank you, Miss Darlene Robinson, for joining us table. today on the Small Business Spotlight. How are you today? 
I'm doing good. I hope you are too. Yes, this is a beautiful day, and I'm glad that you were able to take some time out and speak to us today because I know tax time is the busiest time for Darlene, the tax diva. <laughs> Can you share a little bit about your journey as a business owner? Uh, yeah, I, um, been doing business, different businesses for quite a while, but I'm just going to speak on this last one, which has been my, oh man, it's been such a wonderful journey for me because, um, after working in corporate America, I was a subcontractor for a tax business, worked in that office for six or seven years doing taxes. And I've really loved helping people, keeping them from owing, giving them the maximum legal refund and everything. And then, um, I just decided things were just not feeling that good for me in that office and it was time for me to take that leap of faith <laughs> yes. and go out on my own. And that was November 2019 and it was the best decision I ever made um, because it was more, it was less stressful working from home. And then of course, you know, in 2020, by the time uh, tax season started, um, the COVID-19 came about and it was, like I said, it was the best decision I made to be able to work at home. I actually was going to ask you about that because I noticed that you had started your business in 2019, right on the cusp of us running into the pandemic and social distancing and people just panicking and not knowing what to do. And a lot of businesses folded during that time. But I noticed that you are still here and I'm giving you kudos for that. Now, what I want to know is how easy was it for you to pivot during the pandemic and make your business sustainable and lasting? Well, one thing, um, even though I'm a baby boomer, over 65, I ain't saying what my age is, I'm very um, um, uh, literate on uh, computer things, and so... Uh, 90% of my clients that were coming from all over the country, I have a secure um, email. And so a lot of people that I met on social media saw my Facebook page, my Instagram page and everything, and started saying, well, this person must know what she's doing. And I get a lot of likes and comments and everything and a lot of great testimonials. So um, I didn't. it wasn't that big of a... Um, uh, problem coming home and staying home and doing everything on the computer nice transition because i've heard people and i've read quite a few stories that people are getting burnt out and just tired from working on the computer but what i'm glad to hear is that you were able to take that resource and make it work for you and your business mm -hmm. because even now i've got a video camera you know doing webinars or being on webinars and things like that and so it's been really great awesome are you teaching any classes or anything i noticed you said webinars um no they're usually um with uh, i have a couple other side hustles <laughs> yes you know the credit repair um a referral agent for that and a couple other things but um of uh, an associate of mine who came out of that same tax office, we did take a class a couple of years ago on how to teach doing taxes to people. And we've been talking about that 
oh, the last couple of months, maybe we should get together and train people how to do taxes, even if they just want to learn how to do it themselves and have a better idea of how to do it. That would be a lucrative business and good for your community also. Now, I have to ask you this right here. As a female business owner, what kind of obstacles do you believe that you faced? Okay, I'm a Jersey girl. I was born and raised <laughs> in Jersey City. Oh, okay, so you're prepared. Uh, yeah, yeah. So it, it's not a any big issue for me on things. I just deal with it and move on. Awesome. So you, you know how to handle yourself and you don't let that stand in the way of progress. Exactly. Exactly. Do you have any advice for any new business owners that may have just started or may have that little small must excuse me, mustard seed of a thought for being a business owner? Hmm. Well, they need to take some business training. Um, I mean, the SBA um, has um, online videos on how to set up a business, um, what they need to do. And my biggest thing is record keeping. Um, a couple of years ago, I was at a business expo and I was with, uh, the main speaker about taxes. And um, one of the things that I see since I've been doing taxes, people start businesses and they always want somebody else to take care of the back end stuff because all they have is the passion to do the business, but they need to be um, in tune with what their quarterly income is, what their quarterly expenses are, and keep really good records of it. So, especially if they need to get a loan, I'm not talking about the PPP loan, but back in the day when they just wanted to get a loan or get financed so they can get move ahead in the business, you know, they, they have to know a lot about the back office to be able to present it to a bank to get a loan. That is awesome information. And for our listeners that might not be business owners, she's talking about the Small Business Association. And they are affiliated with the National Entrepreneur Center. And you can reach out to them at any time and they will help you, guide you along the steps of starting your business and even setting you up with uh, someone that might be interested in the same business that you are. And uh-huh. yeah, very, very, very useful organization for small business owners and people that call themselves veterans in a business. Right. Now, D- Darlene, I don't know if you can tell us this right here, but I saw a picture on Facebook where you were holding this huge garbage bag <laughs> and said it was people's taxes, tax information in there. What's the most outrageous tax prep story that you can share with us and give us a laugh today or warn us not to do this to our tax professionals? Well, see, that's what I was talking about, the good record keeping, because that was... 12 months of receipts and bank statements left on my plate. Oh, wow. (laughs) Because um, I do also do bookkeeping, and um, some clients I don't have to do the the intense bookkeeping, but just do an Excel spreadsheet, go through their bank statements and their receipts, and come up with their income and their expenses. And then there's other ones that are larger, um, more corporate-related businesses that would do the... um, the bookkeeping for but yeah that client they don't care i i actually charged them a thousand dollars last year wow to the statements and the receipts and he didn't care yeah it just makes it easier for him 
And I guess if, if you had refused it, then he would have probably cared for the next time around. But, hey, it worked out for him this time. Darlene, give us some uh, contact information for anyone that might need to contact you in the near future. And if you want to share anything else prior to us wrapping it up, we would appreciate that also. Okay, my main number is 407-300-5473. And my main email is DarleneTheTaxDiva at gmail.com. <laughs> awesome. Well, we definitely can't forget that, the tax diva. Thank you for speaking with us today, and it is Friday, and you go ahead and start your weekend celebrating. Have an amazing day. Thanks. All right. You too. Thanks a lot. All right. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. You're listening to Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. Again, we just want to thank our listeners. We want to thank LaVonda Wilder with the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce, Andrew Brown with Brown Box Creative Solutions. We want to thank all of our guests, Geraldine Thompson, Mr. Daniel Ings, Maxine Montales, and Darlene Robinson. Our Seat, Our Table can be heard every Friday on WPRK-FM, or the call numbers are 91.5. We want to thank LaVonda Wilder with the Eatonville Chamber of Commerce, as well as Andrew Brown with Brown Box Creative Solutions. We want to thank our listening audience. We want to thank our participants. We had Representative Geraldine Thompson, who is also the founder of Wells Built Museum. We had Daniel Ings, who is the founder of Boys to Men Mentoring, as well as the choreographer for the opera for Carmen, which is playing at the Orlando Opera, Maxine Montales. I'm hoping I'm pronouncing that correctly. As well as our business spotlight, Darlene Robinson, also known as the Tax Diva. You are listening to Our Seat, Our Table Leadership Lounge. We are here every Friday from 9 to 10. You can catch us on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, as well as our local station, WPRK. Once again, we want to thank you so much for joining us, and we look forward to seeing you here again next week. Go higher, think greater, be stronger, be wiser, our seat, our table. This is our voice, our time, 